Yeah, warm welcome to Tuesday's programme. How are you? I hope you're well. I bet you're warm. If you're in the UK, you're bloody well warm. Uh, it's Richie Allen with you again, of course, until 7 o'clock this evening. I've got two very interesting guests for you. Reach out to the programme via the website, which is back on air, thank heavens, or the app for the programme, The Richie Allen Show app. I look forward to hearing from you today. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Why why are events like Let Women Speak Necessary, Standing for Women, which is run by Kelly J. Keane, has organized an event in Dublin on Saturday, September the 16th, Let Women Speak Dublin. Why? What's going on? Brilliant article about all of this in The Telegraph today. I'm going to be talking about this at this hour with uh, Roisin Michaud. Now, Roisin is a journalist based in Brussels. She's got a brilliant Substack account and she has been reporting on this also for Unheard as it happens. So Roisin, live from Brussels this hour, will get into that issue, which is, um, I think, very serious. A little bit later on, as the media in the United States is ramping up talk of COVID restrictions returning this autumn and winter in the United States of America, namely wearing masks and, and what not. I'll be joined, not for the first time, old friend of the programme, the former US Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Paul Craig Roberts Life, on the programme, and uh, he joins me a little bit later on in the show. Busy old programme, as I mentioned, get involved via the website or leave me a message via the Richie Allen Show app. Yeah, it's really funny when you're me. I am someone who, when I'm away from broadcasting for any stretch of time, be it a week, be it two weeks, be it three weeks, um, my vocals dry up. And when I come back, it's always a little bit difficult. First um, few days. I'm having it again today. I'm just gulping the water is what I'm doing. And yeah, it is lovely. I know, I know it's boring to talk about the weather, but it's uh, it's been another wonderful day. We're going to have a good week of it. And... Well, we should be thankful for what we can get, I suppose, is one way of looking at it. Listen, we, we're going to be talking about this with Roisin, as I said, a little bit um, later this hour, in about 25 minutes or thereabouts. Sadiq Khan is the mayor of London, uh, the ULES mayor, depending on who you are, not very popular, but maybe he is to some people. Um, he spoke in depth on Piers Morgan's talk TV programme, last night and he talked about ULEZ and whatnot but we'll leave that uh, for now because we're going to be talking about gender wars and what have you with uh, Roisin. We'll have a little bit of a listen to this, not too much because um, because we're going to be talking about it later on. Here's Piers Morgan speaking with Sadiq Khan last evening on the Talk TV channel. What is a woman, Mr Mayor? Well, I asked that question knowing full well that people may be watching this who may have gender dysphoria and, and may, you know, have concerns in relation to this issue. So let me be quite direct in relation to this. So uh, a woman, uh, when it comes to biology and sex, is an adult girl. 
but there are some women who may have gender dys dysphoria and you know trans women can also be women as well trans women can also be women as well i love the way he prefaces this by saying you know i'm going to answer this by talking about people who might have gender dysphoria and who might be a bit you know alert to such discussions instead of just saying a woman is a biological human female with ovaries and a womb from birth. Not every woman, I suppose, is born with ovaries. Some women can be born without certain things. I'm well aware of that. How did this progress then, this conversation? Uh, Keir Starmer said that 99.9%, .9 I think he's up to now, of women don't have penises. Uh, what percentage do you think it is? I'm not going to apply, apply percentage. What I do know, Piers, is... Uh, is well, you know why I'm yeah. asking, because most... He's not going to apply percentages. Most women watching would say, no, of course actually, 100%, 100% of, of women don't have penises. No, sure. Well, I was speaking to people who work in the domestic violence sector a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, trans women, you know, are on the receiving end of domestic violence and domestic yeah, abuse, but by the way. But why does he go there? He's asked about percentages. Your leader said that 99.99% of women do not have a, a penis. And then he immediately goes to, I was speaking to people about domestic violence and trans people are victims of domestic violence. Why? I mean, why is he going there? But you see, this is, I've heard people try and, and distract the conversation like this. The no, thing is, I don't dispute that. And I want, I, absolutely, to be clear, I want trans people to be treated with humanity, with respect and with fairness and equality. I know you do. I know you do. My issue, you do. My issue comes where trans rights start to subjugate women's rights. And I think that's what the problem sure, is. Now, what I was going to say, please, forgive me, is, is that uh, and those trans women who at the receiving end of domestic violence, you know, may have had a penis is the point I was going to make. But similarly, I know, you know, there are some... The women, the trans women at the receiving end of domestic violence may have had a penis. Some, there are some places that are protected uh, for single sex brackets biology. So, so you know, these are complicated issues. And that's why I don't want to, I don't want to be flipping. It's not, it's really, stuff, it's actually not that complicated, is it? I mean, I think if you start from a position, there are men and women, and then there are trans women and trans men. If you just articulate it like that, there's not a problem. It gets complicated when people try and pretend I think that I biological males are women. They're not. I think there's biology and then there's gender, isn't there? And the point I was trying to get across is, is that you know that, that I'm aware it's, it's very difficult if you're somebody who's trans, you're going through this, uh, and, and you know. And so what I'm trying to do is be sensitive to that, but recognising as you've asked me to do of some of the challenges when it comes to sports, particularly those sports where your sex does matter. Your sex does matter. And just in case you forgot the struggles, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, his struggle in answering that pretty basic question, here he is some months ago speaking to Nick Ferrari on LBC Radio. A woman can have a penis. <laughs> Nick, I'm not... I don't think we can conduct this debate with... You know, sorry, have I, I, have get I offended this, like, you in some? No, no, no. It's just, uh, no, no, no. I just a I woman can have a penis. I don't think that um, discussing this issue in this way helps anyone in the long run. What I want to see is um, a reform of the law as it is. I think he has since declared that women can't have a penis, as far as I understand. He did marginally better than the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Ed Davey. Remember this? So a woman can have a penis? Well, quite clearly. Quite clearly. A woman can have a penis, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Oh, shut up, you tart. We're going to be talking about this in depth with uh, Roisin Misho a little bit later on this hour. It's eight minutes past the hour. I'd love to hear from you today. Reach out via the website or via the app for the programme. Thank you so much to Hayden Hewitt for getting the website back up and running. Thank you, Hayden. If you happen to be listening, you might have better things to do. He's editing a feature film and doing the music for it and all sorts of stuff. He's very busy. Is our pal Hayden. So we'll leave gender stuff for the moment, but it's hugely important. We'll come back to it. As I said, an event will take place in Dublin this coming September 16th at uh, Merrion Square South, the, the street outside the park there, of course. Um, and it's standing for women and let women speak. It's going to happen between 12 noon and 2 p.m. And maybe I shouldn't be inserting my tuppence worth here. Maybe I should keep my opinions to myself. But what I have seen of these these events online, on social media, the police um, tend to stand by a lot and allow men assault and shout and scream at women, don't they? I've seen quite a bit of that. We might get into that with uh, with Roisin. Where am I going next? Where am I going next? Yes, Humza Yousaf is the leader of the Scottish National Party and therefore he is Scotland's first minister. He took over from Jimmy Cranky. You remember Nicola Sturgeon has got all manner of problems these days. Now today Humza Yousaf brought his programme for government before the Scottish Parliament. Basically he laid out what will be his government's priorities in Scotland for the next 12 months, right? Now one of the things that came up interestingly enough, is a proposal for civil servants to work four days a week and not five. Now, this was discussed on Politics Live on the BBC today. The presenter, Joe Coburn, you'll hear her first, and then you'll hear David Linden from the Scottish National Party. And he manages to include, well, quite a few what we might call World Economic Forum slogans. So have a listen to this. Let's have a look at this headline in the Herald. Hamza Yusuf, the First Minister, Scotland to pilot four-day working week in key Holyrood speech. Uh, yes, he's going to confirm, we expect, uh, this trial of civil servants uh, for the first time in Scotland. How will it work, David? Well, I think at the moment what we see is we, you know, we're building back better from COVID. We cannot just go back to doing the same. Um, so I think there's going to be a 12-month trial. Uh, we're building back better from COVID. We can't go back to doing the same. And this isn't challenged by Joe Coburn, unsurprisingly. I think at the moment what we see is we, you know, we're building back better from COVID. We cannot just go back to doing the same. Um, so Why can't we go back to doing the same? Why is that? She should ask him, of course. That's the whole point of journalism. Building back better, we can't go back to doing the same. Why not? But she doesn't ask him. Well, I think there's going to be a 12-month trial uh, to see if a four-day week works. Um, anecdotally, I, I have it in my own office. My own office manager works a four-day week and what we see is productivity is up. And I think, is it? Yeah, I would say so. And the evidence that is out there is fairly limited at the moment, suggests mm. it's worth exploring. Um, but I think it's part of a, a wider fair work agenda that the Scottish Government have got. So A wider fair work agenda. So, for example, the first government to commit to the accredited national living wage employer the credited national living wage employer. Um, making sure that we have a, a better relationship, for example, with trade unions. Um, so it's all about how, how can you work towards that well-being economy because... Well-being economy? What the hell is a well-being economy? Unions. Um, so it's all about how, how can you work towards that well-being economy because this idea we expect people to just turn up to offices and work nine to five, five days a week. 
when you know if we can have better mental health outcomes, you know it's worth doing, and I think that's what the first minister's looking at today. Better mental health outcomes. So can people expect a better service uh, from the public sector, from civil servants in Scotland? Well, I think that's one of the things we're going to be trialling to see: does this four-day week actually work and result in a more efficient government, more productive government? And you know, the, the indication, certainly anecdotally in my own office, is that that does work. Um, but it's part of a wider package about how do you get a good deal in place for workers. It's only a shame that the Labour Party is blocking the devolution of employment law. Slogans, he's blaming the Labour Party then for, for not supporting such ideas and delaying the implementation of such ideas. But some of those slogans, I love them, the phrases, build back better, the well-being economy, better mental health outcomes and stuff like that. I believe you can call me an old conspiracy theorist if you like, but it's not because I want to believe it, it's because all the evidence is there. There is an agenda to keep people in their homes doing whatever it is they should be doing from their homes. Everything, from working to shopping to entertaining, all of that from your home. Well-being economy. We've got to pursue this on the programme, I think. Your messages are piling in. Hi to Kay. Hello, Kay. I've just downloaded the app, she says. Thank you, Kay, for doing that. Adult human female is a woman. Don't these politicians realise they are in danger of alienating 50% of the population? Seemingly not, Kay. Uh, seemingly not. Thanks for the message. Jan says, check out the energy bill going through Parliament. It's horrific and reinforces your beliefs, Richie, on where they'll try to go with home ownership. Thanks, Jan. I'm trying to get some comment on that to do a proper show on it next week because it's very, very serious. It's beyond serious. Thank you. Andrea says, it's been Scorchio today in Glasgow. Good evening, Andrea. Hi to Paulie, who says, uh, Sadiq Khan is a wretched individual, isn't he? He always stutters and stalls when he speaks. It's like he has absolutely no belief in what he's saying whatsoever. Just another one in a long line of useful idiots. Thank you for that, Paulie. And I too can't. That's K-A-N-T. Thank you for your link. Hi to David, who says either they want to rob another election, even though they are charades, or masks are a compliance test for the next step of the agenda. That's David. Thank you, David. Hi to Jem, who says, uh, Richie, great to hear you back. My hubby, Jay, has just rescued four tourists from drowning at Bostony Beach whilst he was surfing. What a hero. Well done, Jay. You might be getting uh, an award for that, Jay. We might see you going to Buckingham Palace there, Jay, taking a knee while the sword is touched to your right shoulder. Maybe. They probably wouldn't knight you for that now, for rescuing four tourists. You're more likely to get an MBE, I would imagine. Well done, Jem. Well done, Jay. Uh, Baird has been in touch to say, Richie, you should have received a package for me. Thank you. Um, there is a P.O. Thank you, Baird. There is a P.O. box address for the programme. It's on richieallen.co.uk and there is a massive spider walking up my microphone cage, cradle thing. Look at the size of it. <laughs> and while I'm not terrified of spiders, I'm not exactly thrilled about them either. This has never happened on live radio. How do you tell a spider to piss off? Piss off, spider. No, he's still there. Or she. More, more, more likely she, isn't it, with the, with the spiders. Caroline says, Richie, you're reaching all age groups. Even my son and his friends are tuning in. You're a big hit at the University of Brighton. Give over, Caroline. But thank you anyway. She says, I remember the great Dean Henderson saying, it's great to buy the books, but more importantly, 
to spread the book around to reach wider audiences. My son keeps putting his request slash order of books uh, that your great guests have written when mentioned on air. He keeps submitting that uh, t- to the library at his university. Uh, he, he, yeah. So when her son hears about books on this programme, he tries to get them placed in the university library so that they might get a much bigger reach. Thanks, Caroline, and thank your son uh, for that. Hi to Dean Sawyer, who says, Richie, it's never discussed that fertility has been deliberately interfered with via food, water and pharmaceuticals, which is highly likely the possible cause of biological gender confusion. It's deliberate to decrease the population, says Dean in his opinion. Thank you, Dean. Uh, Hi to Phil who says, rather than being concerned over the state of politics in the UK, Richie, it might be better to view things in the terms that we have an illegitimate government. Take a look at this and see what you think. And he sends me a nice link there. And I to Carol from Waterford, who says, Richie was just sent a link. Birmingham City Council has effectively declared itself to be bankrupt. Yes, that story got a lot of coverage in the MSM today. Apparently, Birmingham is the largest local authority in Europe. Did you know that, dear listener? I didn't. This spider is really starting to get on my moobs. My man boobs. What are you doing, spider? Honestly, I'm not joking. I wish I was... I had a webcam here, didn't I? I had the camera. It wasn't a webcam. It was a proper camera. But I switched it off because I didn't like looking at myself. Um, It's gone hidden behind the stand now. I'll have to do something about it. I'll take it outside. I'll take it outside. I'll I'll leave it outside. Now, um, we've heard quite a bit this week about the weight loss jab, Wegovy. 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 Which has been made now available to patients on the NHS, but only through specialist weight management services, right? So for those who get it, it'll be a weekly injection. It's been called a wonder drug by people who want to lose a bit of weight. Celebrities have given it glowing endorsements. Obesity patients have said, I've managed to lose quite a bit of weight with this once a week jab. Now, the NHS rollout of this Wegovy jab will be limited to people who do need medical help in order to lose weight. People with a BMI over 30, that's a body mass index, or with a BMI of more than 27. So, yeah, so if you have a BMI over 30, you'll be offered it. Now, if you have a BMI over 27, you'll also need to have a weight-related comorbidity and then they'll give you the drug, right? But they will recommend you reduce your calories and you start getting out a bit more to exercise as well. Now, semaglutide is the active ingredient. It mimics the hormone GLP-1 to manage hunger and to slow down the old digestion there. Now, this uh, semaglutide, sorry, let me say that again. It's semaglutide, semaglutide. It's also the active ingredient in Ozempic, which you've probably heard of. And that was one of the big, the, the, the very first weight loss jabs to get a lot of coverage by TikTok and whatever. So everybody's excited, except the GP, Rene Hunderkamp. Now, Dr. Rene Hunderkamp was on uh, Talk TV with Mike Graham today, and she had a sobering, she had a rather sobering message for people who think it's a good idea to take one of these weight loss drugs. Rene Wunderkamp, GP. There are several things about this drug that we don't know. We only have about two years data in terms of long-term side effects and there are some links with the rodents they tested it on with cancer, with blindness, with all sorts of nasty side effects. So if you take this, you're part of an ongoing long experiment because we won't know for several years. Secondly, 
you only lose weight on this while you're taking it. When you stop taking it, your appetite comes back, you start eating and the weight goes on. So here's the NHS scrambling to put money into this. And if you compare it with other things, for example, like children who have intractable epilepsy that we know from really good data from Canada, for example, can be helped by medical cannabis, but they can't get it. Mm. But here, if you're obese, you can get this with two years of data. You have to question what has gone wrong here that we seem to be guided purely by what Big Pharma want us to do? What has gone wrong that we seem to be guided by Big Pharma telling us what to do? So she says um, there's been problems with this particular weight loss drug during the trial period. There's not enough long-term safety data. Does that ring a bell or two? Dear listener, I think it probably does. 20 minutes past the hour. It's a Tuesday's Richie Allen Show broadcasting live on the Richie Allen Show app, richieallen.co.uk and multiple other platforms as well. Fabradiointernational.com one of those uh, platforms you can hear the programme on. It is archived on podomatic.com. You can hear it pretty much wherever you, you, you get your podcast from. Hi to Pedro. He says, well done, Jay, but you will probably get a fine because there is a depopulation agenda in play, he says, and you're messing it up. Jay, who saved the uh, swimmers when he was out there uh, surfing. That's a bit cynical, Pedro. That's a bit cynical. Hi to Wiz, who's scorching in Norfolk. He's sweating like a glass blower's arse, he says. Thank you for that. Hi to the sarcastic window cleaner. And thank you very much for the P.O. Box um, incoming uh, message, incoming parcel. Thank you for that. David says, Birmingham Council should have installed more ULES cameras to make up some of their funds, perhaps. Very good, David. Very good. I'm not sure Brummies would agree with you, but well done. Uh, Jacob has been on to say, Welcome back. Popular weight loss drugs, Ozempic and Saxenda, are under investigation, he says, for a link to suicidal thoughts. And he sends me a link to RFK Jr. That's Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a presidential candidate in America. He sends me a link to his website, where he makes this claim, does RFK Jr., that um, there there is some link between the weight loss Injections, because you, you get an injection, it's a syringe, um, to, to to suicide. Thanks for that, Jacob. I'll get stuck right into that. Hi to Holly. Richie, I lost. Wait for it, says Holly. Two and a half stone in two months on a keto diet, which is high fat, very low carb, no sugar. Cheaper and safer, maybe, asks Holly. Well, Holly, I know that not everybody who's very heavy uh, can get out and do the sort of exercise that I do. I know that. Because some people who are overweight, they've got issues with mobility, they've got um, injuries maybe, they can't go running, even walking is difficult. So so keep that in mind before people start shouting at me. But but yeah, when, when I was, I mean, I'm in very, very good shape now, obviously, you know this, if you see photographs online when I post occasionally, I'm a five mile a day runner. I do that for, not for my mental well-being at all. I do it because it helps me to think clearly. And I enjoy it. I don't kill myself. I run decent times, but I don't kill myself. So my first instinct when I realised seven and a half, eight years ago that being 17 stone, even though I'm six foot, six inches tall, and yes, ladies, it's all in proportion. uh, Six and a half foot tall, you think 17 stone, you might get away with it. No, 
no, I decided no, enough was enough, and I went back running. And I did change my diet somewhat at the time as well. And I recommended people who can get out there, if your mobility is not restricted by injury or by other what they call comorbidities, if you can get out there, get out there. You will feel a lot better in yourself. I wouldn't go near any of these weight loss jabs, but I must put the caveat. Don't take any medical advice from me because I don't know anything about... um, medicine. I'm not qualified to give advice one way or the other. Christopher says, it's a spy spider, Richie. Thank you, Christopher. Right to Paul, who says, Richie, when I was going to the shops, I noticed a butterfly was trapped under my front door, and it's been on my hand for a while now, says Paul. Beautiful creatures, butterflies. David says, the difference between a vaccine and epilepsy drugs is the profit margin of vaccines is much greater for pharmaceutical companies. Thank you very much uh, for that. Now, I'm going to take a tune when we come back on the other side of it. Um, Roisin Michaud will join us live from Brussels. As I mentioned earlier, on the 16th of September, this September, by the way, right, between 12 noon and 2 p.m., Merrion Square South in Dublin, just outside the park, a street, Merrion Square South, just outside the park, um, Standing for Women will be there. Kelly J. Keane, presumably, will be there. She's been on this programme in the past, but not uh, of late, it must be said. Why do we need these um, sort of events? What's going on? And there's a brilliant article. Now, first of all, Roisin uh, Michaud's Substack, you've got to read it, it's called Peaked. P-E-A-K-E-D dot substack dot com. She's a brilliant writer, written for Unheard. I came across an article today in The Telegraph, written by Suzanne Moore. And it's about Roisin Murphy, the Irish singer. So we'll talk a little bit about that and more with um, Roisin Michaud when she joins me in a few minutes. This is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. It's September 5th, an incredibly warm afternoon here in the northwest of the UK. I think it's pretty warm everywhere you look, you know. Everywhere you look, it's blooming warm. And the news anchors are doing that thing the news anchors do, which is a claim that it's climate change. Anyway, this is Climby Fisher, then on your Richie Allen show, back with Roisin Michaud in about three minutes' time. Yeah, it is uh, 29 minutes past the hour of 5 o'clock. Climby Fisher and love changes everything. I'm a child of the 80s. That's my excuse. I grew up in the 80s. Now, lots of interest in this. Lots of comments, by the way, coming in via the app and also via the website. Thank you for them. And some of them are very relevant to the discussion that we will have with Roisin. But let me read you just momentarily something from today's Telegraph newspaper. Suzanne Moore writing in the Telegraph. Uh, the headline reads, Even private chats can get you cancelled by gender ideologues, right? Now, she writes, does Suzanne Moore, of the Irish singer Roisin Murphy. You'll have been following this, right? Um, she posted a private Facebook message where she expressed concern that children might be vulnerable to puberty blockers and they might need protecting from such things, right? Now, fair enough, I would say, okay, but no, apparently not. Um, She's had gigs cancelled and record promotion basically stopped, right, by the record company. It's dreadful stuff. Now, in this article today, Suzanne Moore also writes about an incident which took place in Manchester at the Pride Festival, which was only a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, a burlesque performer called Dev Mystery overheard a member of staff at a hotel 
talking about tra- trans people. Now, this burlesque performer had to take his headphones off to hear what was going on, what was being said, so eavesdropped. There was nothing malicious about it, really. The staff member says men are men and women are women, and there's no in-between. And this burlesque performer, Dev Mystery, complained to reception and the employee had to apologise. But this mystery character went even further and made sure the complaint went to the head office of the hotel and was given an assurance, Dev Mystery was given an assurance by HR that staff would be given more training on LGBTQ issues. And she concludes, does Suzanne Moore, the effect of screeching transphobia at anyone who does not kowtow to the slogans is an eerie silence where everyone keeps their head down for fear of being destroyed. And she says it's been like that in the public sphere for some time. Now, Roisin Michaud is a journalist based in Brussels and she's been reporting on these issues for some time. She's written some really interesting articles for Unheard and also on her own Substack account, which is peaked.substack.com. It's a real pleasure to welcome Roisin to the programme. Hey, Roisin, how are you? Hi, Richie. How are you doing? I'm, I'm, do- I'm doing really well and thanks for giving us a bit of time. I know it's in the early evening there in, in Brussels. I really appreciate that. Can I ask you straight up, no why why are events um, organised by Standing for Women? And we're going to have one in Dublin on the 16th of September, um, Merrion Square South, just outside the park. Why do we need these events? Why, For people who are not overly familiar with this particular issue, why do we need to have such an event? I suppose because um, any of the normal channels of communication have sort of been in uh, what we say in turf speak, we call them captured. So um, any sort of mainstream media or any any kind of outlet that people would usually get their news, get this information from, has there's something happened to them. We don't know quite what has happened and why, but if you're concerned about anything from the school curriculum that's full of gender identity to males in women's jails, to oh God, you know, the removing biology from law and replacing it with gender. There's very few avenues for people to talk about it. So Posey Parker, whose real name is Kelly J. Keane, um, just sort of started these sessions in the park a couple of years ago where she would just invite people to talk about them. And then lo and behold, you would have trans rights activists would come and make noise to try and drown her out because the the uh, it's it's not that we're not allowed to speak, it's that nobody is allowed to hear us, you know, because we we have these opinions that are not welcome or inconvenient or honestly, I'm a journalist, I'm trying to figure out what exactly is going on and I don't know why everyone in, in the establishment is so worried about hearing what we have to say, but that's where we're at. Yeah, there was a time, and I'm, I'm approaching 50, sadly, and I often have conversations with broadsheet writers from the 80s who have found themselves cancelled for one reason or another and they lament all the time Roisin that you know back in the day we would have had long form interviews and debates about these issues where you would have had trans activists and you would yeah. have had feminists maybe or 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 gay and lesbian women sitting around the studio uh, for yeah. an hour and, and thrashing it out but you're right there there's an absolute absence of that in the media is that because organizations and the only one i can think of and i don't want to sound like i'm picking on stonewall but they seem to have gotten in the door of companies and the media and they've been given 
well, maybe not, maybe there's a bit of a pushback on it, but for a time, they were basically writing um, equality policies for these organisations. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that what happened? Well, we're talking about the British or the Irish context or the global context the, or the, the European more, context, more because globe, I sort yeah. of study all of them. Which one now? Because they're look. The the thing is that the same thing is happening in every single country, and people in an individual country, like in the UK or in Ireland or in Belgium, where I happen to live right now, even though I'm Irish, or in Germany, we're all, they're all very laser focused on the situation in their own country, and that's normal. But because I live in Brussels and I work adjacent to the European institutions and adjacent to the UN institutions and stuff, I could see that everything was happening all at the same time. So this really fascinates me. So even if it is Stonewall, even if it was Stonewall, which it was, like I'm not mega familiar with, yeah. the, with the British context because we take, I read enough as it is, I do enough research as it is into the, what's happening at the more supranational level, at the international level. Um, even if it is Stonewall, Stonewall didn't, it didn't fall out of the sky into their lap. You know, it, it, it like th- there's sorry, I mean to say they're not they're 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 acting. I know what you the mean. They're not everyone yeah, is acting. They're not you acting know, of they're their doing own volition. The same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. And that's what I'm really interested in. Well done. Right. I'm, I'm not patronizing you at all. I'm not. That's that's what I'm interested in, because, yes, you're saying lockstep. This stuff began mm-hmm. happening everywhere all at once. And I want to know why and who's behind it. But why, I suppose, yeah. is more important right now than uh, that than maybe who why why mm-hmm. why did we move again i'm nearly 50 why did we move from a world where i knew some trans people or some transvestites or men who like to dress as women i knew the occasional drag queen and there was never a problem mm-hmm. you know we might have looked upon people like that with um you know, we might have seen them as quirky or eccentric and we might have thought, ah, Jesus, mm-hmm. God love them, as we might say back home. Um, we kind of got on and, you know, with my old lefty, you know, journalist background, we would have um, moved pretty quickly to highlight any genuine, I suppose, um, discrimination Oppression again. Or... Yes, exactly. But we don't yeah, have any yeah. of that. And all of a sudden we're being told everywhere in the world that this is how we must think about this and to not think like that will have consequences. So why is it happening now all over the world, do you think? Or is that too big a question? It is a big, huge question and I'm working on it. So I don't want to jump the gun, but I do have a couple of theories. I have one very strong theory and I wrote about it in Unheard last week. So to, to just backtrack a little bit, everybody asks, you know, uh, what, not everybody asks, but people say we should detach the T from the LGB because the LGB, the lesbian, gay and bisexual doesn't seem to have that much to do with the T because on the one hand, LGB is about accepting yourself as a gay person, whereas the T seems to be about rejecting the reality of your sex body um and so people always say at what point did the t get added to the lgb and this is a very interesting question and again as you said nobody's ever discussed it if you pitched it to an editor you know i tried to be a mainstream journalist there for a few years and this was my area of interest and nobody was interested in it they couldn't it's not that they weren't interested in it; they couldn't publish it but my big question was always at what point did the t get added to the lgb and why did it and it turns out that there's an even more interesting question for us and that is that before the t was added to the lgb the t had to be added added to the T because there were transsexuals and there were transvestites and then there were as you say drag queens and none of them had really that much to do with each other um but for political expediency they joined together under this transgender umbrella 
transgender wasn't a term that was used much at all until a point in history that we still have to root out where they said, OK, it'll be better for us now if we were all to band together and join onto the LGB. And there was huge resistance from the gay and lesbian community to this because they didn't see at all what they had to do with each other. And again, as I said, the trans Vestites, which is what we would have called cross-dressers, and the transsexuals, which is most of the time very dysphoric gay men who want to disappear into womanhood, they had to join each other also. So if you look back in the history, like there's all sorts of sources out there, and as I said, I do a lot of reading of this stuff, a lot of interviews, a lot of strategizing how to gain rights for transgender people by glomming on to gay rights. And so first they had to join each other and then they had to join the gays. And this whole thing is in black and white out there if you just have the time to read it. And the thing is that what I've, what I've as far as I've discovered, it's that the, it, when, the, so the HIV epidemic disproportionately affected gay people. Um, but when funders were given money to community groups to go out and start treating gay people, gay men, uh, they were finding that they were being confronted with a lot of transsexuals because a lot of effeminate gay men who um, have sex reassignment, they often work as sex workers. Now, obviously, this is where this, the most marginalized people in society comes from. You know, we hear this often when we're talking about transgender people that they're the most marginalized. And we say to ourselves, what are they even talking about? Like they have parades, they have days, they have months. Everyone is expected to bow down. And that's not who the most marginalized refers to. It refers to these third gender um, sort of really super hyper marginalized sex workers in places like India, like the Hydra in India, the travesties in South and Central America, um, the Fafafine, which are always held up. All these third cultures are always held up as like, you know, these amazing examples of pre-colonial third gender acceptance sort of paradigms when they weren't really what they were was a homophobic compromise for gay or feminine men and so these people were very very marginalized now when you live in a society when you live in a globalized world where the the rules that were made or sort of the strategies that were made to lift those people out of poverty are being being applied to our countries where we don't necessarily have that situation and that's why we have this really strange disconnect between call you know the literature tells us that these are the most marginalized people in society. And all we can see is like envies on Tumblr who are upper middle class girls who are cutting themselves. And we just, we don't really know. Do you see what I mean? Like I, I the, the sort of, the, the, the marginalized people was always meant to apply to this sort of group of people that doesn't sort of exist in our, in our countries. Although there were plenty of transsexual Brazilians in Ireland and in the UK. Um, and so this sort of, the these it was in it was advantageous for transgender groups trans groups to to in order to boost their um in order to get funding for their cause and because they were affected so disproportionately by hiv and aids they joined with the gay groups and it was found that they were disproportionately themselves you know it's in some countries transsexual males are up to 80% more likely to have HIV. Um, anywhere you go, there's like 25% of transsexual sex workers have HIV. So I think the HIV and AIDS is a huge part of where the money came from to support these groups. And that got supercharged after gay marriage was passed in a lot of the West because the gay groups who had attached with the transgenders because they were, I hope I'm not confusing you here. Like I no. know it's a lot of information. No, but it is. Yeah, but I read I the article. That, 
I read the article three times. I, I'm, it's, okay. it's, it's very, very detailed on, on Herd. And um, I'll put a link to it, by the way, on the podcast notes later on. Thanks. No, no, you're, no, no, no don't say thanks. There's um, a more detailed version on my own Substack, And I mean, it's just sort of, you know, the part, the part about there's HIV clinics are being re, uh, they're being turned into gender affirming care clinics in order to catch those very marginalized men who are selling sex uh, what we would call them shemales uh, in porn, they're called shemales. The men who are attracting a very specific subgroup of men. Um, that's that's a fact. My my opinion is that having read everything that I've read, coming from UNAIDS and coming from everywhere over the last couple of decades, is that self ID was one of the ways to get these people unmarginalized, to get them into the system because. Um, you know, to get to get them on the books, basically get them on the health radar. But that doesn't really apply to Ireland. And yet, because it's, you know, it's come from the UN mostly and particularly the UN technical agencies like um, the WHO and UNESCO and UNICEF and UNAIDS and the World Bank, they've all been saying for at least 15 years, you need to, in the lingo, remove the barriers to care, remove the legal barriers to care to get these people on the health radar. So that's one of the clues so, to so, why this is happening. So so, so, so in that instance, then, it might have, you know, introducing... Um, making self-ID much easier was motivated mm-hmm. by altruism. At least it might have been yeah. in, in the beginning, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I do believe that. I don't like. I know lots of people say, "Oh, it's pedos, or it's neoliberalism, or it's capitalism, or it's pharma," and it might well turn out to be all of the above. I think those people are making hay. I think originally the idea was nobody thought about women. And nobody really thought about the consequences. And they said, these men are so marginalized and they're in such a bad way and treated so badly by society. And they really are. Like in India, you've got almost colonies of sex workers, of effeminate men who would in any other, in our society, grow up just to be gay would lads. Would be gay, yeah. They're effeminate, yeah. Men, they're effeminate men who are targeted, um, who were, you know, often castrated and brought to work as sex workers in these colonies. And they're absolute like hives of HIV because, um, and this is, I don't know, um, you know, if I, if I can speak about this openly at this hour of the day, no, you uh, can, you can, they, yeah, these, yeah. I can say whatever I want. Can I, you can, these yeah, men, these are, fe- these men are fetishized by ostensibly straight men who pay them for sex, pay them for rough sex, condomless sex, which, is more likely to give them HIV. So they they are in some parts of the world, it's crazy. It's like 60% of all transgender women, which is men who identify as women, they have HIV. So I know if you if you know how to read these documents, you can see that for many, many years, the UN agencies have been saying, we need to decriminalize and destigmatize and legitimize the people sexual minorities on the margins of society and what they mean is two things they mean also we need to decriminalize homosexuality because there's still about 70 countries in the world that criminalize homosexuality so it was that and the you know it was both and i mean there's a whole history of how it got into the un and there's a whole history of unsuccessfully getting the UN to to make a resolution on protecting on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So a bunch of people, including uh, an ex-priest called Michael O'Flaherty, got together in early 2000s and said, you know what, we'll do a workaround and we'll create the, the Yogyakarta principles, which you may or may not have heard of. 
which was a bunch of UN people and Mary Robinson and a couple of transgender identifying women who said, we will put together a document and we'll make it sound really legit and we will tell countries, here you go, here's your list of instructions on how to include gender identity into your laws and constitutions, etc. And that was called the Yogi Carter Principles and that took off and um, people, you know, our, our own government in Ireland has cited it. It gets cited here and there and everywhere as you know, this legitimate document that gives us instructions as to how to treat sexual orientation, sexual minorities. The thing is, it was never it was never adopted by the UN. So it was kind of a workaround, you know. But when you see when you have the vantage point that I have, when you see that it's happening in all the different countries at the same time, it's not an accident and it didn't come out of nowhere and it is being driven by the UN and I think that if you trace back far enough you'll notice that the countries with the biggest population of travesties or transsexual identifying men which are also which is Brazil and Central and South America and also the the countries that have the big populations of a uh, big culture of bisexuality they call it which is it's normal again I'm sorry if I'm going too no, far no, no, being inappropriate good. but it's normal to be the insertive male partner and that doesn't make you gay. Like there's a huge culture of that in, in those countries. Those countries were the ones who were pushing hardest for protections on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And the reason why they were is because those countries NGOs were full of, were being had huge they had huge HIV problems this is going back to about between 2000 and 2004 and so funders were given a lot of money to fix the HIV problem and the travesties had to be brought on because they were a huge part of it and as a result we got all those countries pushing at the UN for these resolutions so it's kind of a if you trace back the history you see that but then in parallel you had also like cross-dresser um uh, organizations in the Western world, very small in the UK and in the West, uh, but huge in the US and bankrolled by a couple of very rich individuals. You had these cross-dresser societies and they sort of all merged together at some point. Um, and I hope that's not too much information. But No, no, it's a lot of information, I, but no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm there. What I'm fascinated yeah. by is the, the notion of, I don't want to say third world countries, but other parts of the world which where, where, where homosexuality is frowned upon, uh, to say the very least. In many uh, mm -hmm. countries, you could be killed for it. You could be murdered. If, mm -hmm. if not executed, certainly murdered by, um, you, you know, your, 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 your peers, your, your own population. So we, we, get, we get effeminate men then in these parts of the world, kind of, of, um, living as women and ending up um, in yeah. sex work where they many yeah. of them get HIV so maybe there was an altruistic motive on the part of the UN and others to bring these men out of hiding effectively to look after them to treat them and to tackle HIV and I totally get this and I got this from reading your article which is brilliant and I'm not kissing your backside it's a brilliant piece and I, and I recommend people yeah. go to the Substack, uh, peaked.substack.com to read Rochin's art it's brilliant it's heavy but it's very good read it a couple of times and read it now so how does that then become what we're seeing in let's call them first world countries for the crack what we're seeing in ireland in england in western europe in the united states of america how has that been seized upon by groups here and what's going on and why is it until lately anyway is it going or, or was it going completely unchecked where, you know, we've seen people who have dared, you included, of course, who've dared to say, hang on a second, there's something very wrong with this, um, mm -hmm. you know, being cancelled or, 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 or losing a job in, 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 in many cases, as we've seen. What's happened here then? How has it been seized upon what was going well, on in Central and Southern America and in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places? What's going on? 
Well, I think that, um, you know, you've probably heard of Helen Joyce, who's written this wonderful book, Trans. Yeah. Um, and, and she's amazing. And I went to see her at Genspec. So there was this big Genspec conference in Kerry earlier this year, which is Stella O'Malley's group. And it uh, deals with young people with gender dysphoria. Um, and Helen made a, a, a remark that sort of set me off on this journey of trying to figure out the answer to the question you just asked. And she said that when lawmakers, when politicians get into office, when ministers get into office, um, they sort of these laws just sort of, I'm paraphrasing her now, but these laws just sort of land on their desk and they have to pass them because a lawmaker's job is to pass laws. So the, the process that started maybe 15, 20 years before for that thing to get on their desk on their first day, you know, they might not have been involved in it at all. Like they're just sort of, these things are sort of foisted on them. And I don't want to like take any of the responsibility away from these people because of course, um, you know, they are, they have a lot of responsibility and they get paid well to, you know, to take on that burden of responsibility. But when you look at, for example, the hate, well, maybe that's not a good one. Maybe the conversion therapy one, the hate speech bill, this one even about the constitution, about changing the language about women in the home. That all comes as well from international organizations like the UN. Um, it, it maybe we don't have time to go into the intricacies of how it works, but you know, um, the original Lydia Foy's court case, the European Court of Human Rights, that everyone sort of points to that as the beginning of the story of trans rights. But, you know, there were there was an international effort to do something about the marginalization of uh, sexual minorities, gay people and people with, you know, minority genders, gender identification or whatever. There was an international effort for a long time. And I've no doubt in my mind that Lydia Foy, as well as Christine Goodwin, who was the UK, um, you know, test case, the one the one who went to the European Court of Human Rights to get get her. Um, she had been discriminated against in employment, as was Lydia Foy. Those were all court cases. You see, the, the, the legal aspects were tackled first, but then they went through the other institutions. So the, the gay rights orgs that had attached the T to themselves sometimes in the sometime in the early 2000s, they basically would go and lobby all of your institutions really, really hard. So the international institutions would tell the countries what to do. So let's put it this way. Imagine you're a gay rights lobby like ILGA. ILGA is one of the biggest in the world. They go to the Irish government and they say, listen, can you um, change your hate speech laws so that gender identity is included or the sexual orientation is included and the government's not interested? So what you do instead is you hire somebody full time to go to Strasbourg and to go to Brussels and spend their whole time writing position papers uh, for those people. So, they, so they're basically lobbying in the international institutions. So the next time Roderick O'Gorman or whatever goes to his uh, Council of Europe meeting in Strasbourg or his European Parliament or his European Commission meeting or the Council meeting or whatever in Brussels, he's admonished by the, you know, the Commissioner for Human Rights or he's admonished by whoever, you know, and there's a lot of pressure put on them. And you'll notice this, Ivana Bacic today, she wrote a letter um, in, I think it was the Indo, where she said, did you see that? No, um, I didn't, letter no. today. There was a couple of letters. So there was a couple of letters about we need to have this referendum right now about changing the language of the women in the home. And there was one line that was very telling in Ivana Bacic's uh, letter. She said, we've been told by international agencies to do this. Now, it was in there, among other things. But when you look back, the Human the Human Rights Council of the UN, they do a universal periodic review every few years. I hope I'm not boring you with this. No, you're not. If you were, telling, I'd move on. Go on. 
they've been telling Ireland for at least eight years to change the constitution wording. So they, you have you you now that could be that could be you know they were lobbied hard by organisations, uh, international organisations, you know, to tell us to do that, and it's been a very successful method. Like if you can't go directly, if you can't get the people do popular um, support for something, you can go lobby your government. But if that doesn't work, you can pay to become a member of an international lobby group who has a full time guy in Brussels who will go and lobby them and they'll go tell you to do it. So the first the first sort of I, I, I reckon the most influential um, thing for Ireland was in 2006, there was a Swedish guy who was a Nobel Prize winner called Thomas Hammerberg, who was elected as the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the Council of Europe. And he had he was lobbied really hard by ILGA. Now, I don't know where ILGA got the money from, but he was lobbied really hard to basically do something about gender identity. Um, and he eventually did a tour of all the 47, maybe not all of the countries. There's 47 countries in the Council of Europe. It's not the same as the EU. That's yeah, very yeah, more yeah. detail, but it's kind of important. No, the Council of Europe, he did this big study tour of all the countries and then did a report and told them what they needed to do to be upstanding European citizens and human rights. And he told Ireland introduce uh, a way for transgender people to self-identify. That was in 2009-ish. So I think that was the most important influential thing. And so that sets off a whole, a whole, uh, you know, process of of uh, you know papers getting together committees task forces no 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 white papers whatever you know it's a lot of it is coming from international institutions and that's the reason i think this is my theory why this works so well in small countries and why small countries were the first ones to take it on because malta was the very first one with a self-id law you know then you have malta denmark ireland belgium these were the first self-id laws uh, country uh, self-id laws countries that took it up now we're about to have germany germany's got what like 70 or 80 million people and they've got a sex shop on every high street and in every train station you know i think it was important to country or, sorry argentina malta was already working on its self-id law before argentina got out of the gate that will tell you something malta one of the most conservative the most conservative A very conservative country, country Europe, yeah probably. yeah yeah. So that so those countries they're small, they were good test cases, and now it's gonna be unleashed on much bigger countries. And so I think not to be paranoid, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think that it was very handy that you had these tiny countries where nothing went wrong and it was all went fine. It's like okay, let me let me just um um respond to those, you know, Leo Varadkar saying, Oh, it's done generally it's gone very well. Nobody knew about the self-ID law. It was a big secret almost. And then finally people are starting to discover what it is and what it means and how easy it is to change your legal sex. That's different to nobody really noticing it for years. You can't really say we've had no detrimental effects of a thing that nobody was really aware of. Nobody knew anything about and it. Just just hang on just one second. It's it's, yeah. th it's three minutes to the top of the hour. We can go to around about 10 minutes past the hour. Oh, sorry. Um, no, 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 it's good. It's very important. <laughs> what you've done is better than anybody I've ever spoken to over the years is you've brilliantly outlined how this happens around the world at the same time. And I think you very eloquently explained 
I mean, I don't believe politicians. I mean, you, you can call me a conspiracy theorist if you want. Politicians don't run countries. Countries are run by other uh, parties and they deliver policies through NGOs. Through I think that's fair to say. Think tanks. And I think it's fair yeah. to say that is especially the case with Ireland because no the doubt. UK is different and Germany is different. It's Ireland is absolutely one of the worst suckers for this. No doubt. We have to be. Sure, what leverage do we have? Absolutely none. So politicians, they're civil servants in the UK. There are tens of thousands of them in Whitehall. Tens of thousands. They tell uh, whichever government it happens to be, this is what you're going to be putting through as a bill. Mm -hmm. This is important. And and, and it happens. So let's, in the few minutes Mm -hmm. we have left, right, we're we're speaking to Roisin uh, Michaud. Roisin is Irish, but she's living in Brussels. She's a, a journalist and she's an exceptional writer. Go to her sub stack, which is peaked. P-E-A-K-E-D dot substack um, dot com. It's very important work she's doing at the moment now, explaining this in the broader context. We've already talked about the fact these discussions do not happen in the legacy media where you can have a long-form conversation and lay out what's going on without somebody calling you a transphobe or a turf or or, or any other bloody name they, they, they care to, to call you. This is happening, it's real. Um, wh- Whatever is behind this wants to make it very easy for, I'm, I'm just going to say it, it's not women, it's men, to make it very easy for men to declare, I'm not a man, I am a woman, and then that becomes enshrined in law. What are the implications, in the 10 minutes we have left, what are the implications for the, society if this The continues? implications for replacing um, yeah. biological sex with gender in law are, for women that means we don't have any single sex spaces anymore, and to explain why that's important, I mean, most people don't need explaining why that's important, but sex does not matter most of the time. But when sex matters, it really, really does matter. So women and children, it's a thing that allows us to be out and about in society is that we can have privacy from men and hashtag not all men. Obviously, not all men are bad and not all women are good, obviously, but there are enough men who are a threat to women that it is important that we make this distinction. And I think most people understand that and they understand it in the sports context as well. Um, So these are the implications for society. I mean, look, you have laws going through now about violence against women that are actually pointless and useless. And you might say to yourself, well, you know, maybe we don't need a specific law about violence against women, just no violence against anyone. And that argument can be made. And I almost kind of agree with it myself. But we have politicians putting themselves up there as champions of women's rights when they can't even define a woman. woman. And the most important thing for me is you cannot defend women if you can't say what a woman is. So we have, um, I'll tell you the truth, one of the reasons why I'm so triggered by this subject is because I grew up very poor in Jobstown in the 80s and I was exposed to a lot of deprivation and depravity and I think that young, I think that poor people are going to be really on, on the hook for this dear. They're going to, poor women and children are going to be the ones who are at the mercy of this new uh, way of seeing the world that men that there are no differences between men and women it is when I when I discovered that people were trying to say that there are no differences between men and women at all um, with a daughter who's now coming up to puberty herself and having lived through, uh, having lived my life as a woman, I absolutely am completely triggered by this and I cannot let it pass because I know the consequences 
of of this for people who don't have the means to up sticks and go live somewhere else or go change to you know take their kid out of this facility or or you know like it's poor yeah. women who are going to suffer the most from this um there is a there is a i wrote i wrote about this about the effect this will have on poor women and i think it's on my substack and it's called you meet more perverts when you're poor and it's the most popular thing i ever wrote um and i i would recommend if anybody wants to understand why women who are um poor women and children would be the most worstly affected by this you should read that read that article um can I speak a little bit about the event on the 16th? It was my next uh, question because we've got about six minutes left, which is lovely. Yeah, the 16th of this month in Dublin. Tell us yes. where, what, what's going on and why is it so important that people attend? Okay, so this is an event for any woman to come and speak about this topic. So it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. It's nonpartisan. We don't care You know what your background is anybody is free to come and speak about this because as we've seen with Roisin Murphy you know you you can lose on in other in other channels you can lose everything by speaking out about this um, and we think that's wrong and so there's a woman called Kelly J Keane who is uh, she was famous because she put up a big banner a big sorry a billboard in Liverpool years ago that said a woman is an adult human female and it got taken down and she got into awful trouble um, and she just thought this was outrageous. So she took her her show into the parks where she just got a microphone and she just invited women to speak about their experiences. It's not really, when you go to these events, it's not really about political grandstanding or talking, you know, proclamations or declarations or grand statements. It's often just women talking about things that happened to them. Like I just said, growing up very poor. Some women talk about being in institutions. Some people talk about, um, you know, looking for intimate care and, have, and, and being confronted with a man in a dress who's going to give you intimate care. And, other people talk about the different, you know, the, the, the way, the different ways they've they've been subject to men's perversions and, and stuff like this and how it relates to the current discussion about trans rights. So people are invited to speak about their experiences and there's no judgment and everyone is welcome and it's wonderful. And and um, it's going to happen on a Saturday morning from 12 o'clock until 2 and then afterwards we'll have a big piss up in the pub. It's going to be Sounds amazing. Good. And even if even if you don't feel like even if you don't feel like you, you know, it's live streamed, but anybody who comes can stand far back enough that you're not filmed or whatever. But the guards have had to close off the road because there are so many trans rights activists coming to protest us. You see, we're not a protest. We're just speaking. But there are many people coming to protest us and they call us transphobes. They call us fascists. They call us everything. And it's really jarring because sometimes you'd have a woman who talk about you know when she hit pu- a six-year-old woman talking about when she hit puberty and suddenly she was turned into a sex object and how it it changed you know like our experience with trans widows whose husbands went abandoned them to go live their cross-dressing fetish full-time or whatever and then you'll have trans rights activists come and drowning them out with cowbells and sirens and stuff they don't want people to hear what we have to say and we think that's wrong and so there there will be a noisy counter protest so if you don't feel safe enough to come to the event itself you know send me a dm on twitter i'm roshin Michaud on twitter and we can organize so you can come meet us in the pub afterwards because there's loads of us because every time we talk about it to people people say they whisper it but they say yeah i know what you mean i'm on your side you know this is a massive 
massive institutional takeover of public opinion. Nobody, nobody is buying it, but nobody's saying anything about it. And this is a chance to say something about it. Well done, Roshin. I've I've done my damnedest in the last few years to get. I mean, I've I've had Kelly J Keane on this program numerous times over the years. I've done everything in my power to get the so-called other side on. You know, with with all manner of promises about it being cordial, you know, equal time. I'll keep my own opinions out of it, and um, no, it's 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 impossible. They they will not speak, and I suppose I can say now because it's never going to happen. Um, they don't because their their arguments don't stand up. There's nothing hateful no. or bigoted or mm-hmm. fascistic about the things that you've said to me today or the things that Kelly J Keane has said in the past. Standingforwomen.com is the website. Standingforwomen.com. And you'll find Roisin on Twitter. So what I'll do on the podcast notes is I'll link to Roisin's articles on her um, Substack, but I'll also put a link to where she is on Twitter. Follow her on, on Twitter. And this is a really serious issue. It's as serious as anything very, we yeah. cover on this mm-hmm. programme. So um, a very quick 30 seconds. Uh, final word to you, Roisin. And I'm glad to have met you. And thanks for coming on today. Yeah, it was lovely. Thank you so much. And uh, we hope to see as many people as possible. And and the main message we would have for people is don't be scared because we are right. Uh, you know, this is everyone knows we are right. And you know that because, as you, as you were saying yourself, the um, they can't argue their corner. It has they have to silence us. And that's how, you know, you have a bad argument. Tomorrow night, there'll be a discussion on Twitter spaces. If anyone's familiar with Twitter spaces, I'll be hosting with Estelle Birdie, who's a novelist, an Irish novelist. And we're going to have a good crack of one hour of chatting away about what's going to happen uh, next week and then we'll have another one next Wednesday so if anybody wants to they can join that everyone's welcome. Roisin thanks for your time and have a nice evening really appreciate it you talk too. soon. Bye for now. Thank you so much. Bye Not bye. at all. Roisin Misho, who's Irish lady of course and Dublin but is living in Brussels these days. Uh, she's a journalist standingforwomen.com. This is happening in Dublin on September 16th. That's a Saturday morning at well 12 noon to 2pm. It's South, uh, sorry, Merrion Square South the street outside the park. If you're in Dublin, uh, pop along. And she said there, look, you know, if you're a bit nervous about it, you know, maybe, and that's, she's right to say that, but I'm going to say, if you're a bit nervous about it, but you want to go, go anyway. You know, there will be a big police presence there. Uh, The guard at Shea Corner will be there, I'm sure. I I, I don't think you'll have anything to worry about. Uh, maybe, Maybe it's the time now for not, you know, staying at home when these things are happening. In any case, uh, this is Tuesday's Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen, uh, back with plenty more in about 30 seconds. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Well, it would have been 30 seconds, but I didn't load something else. It doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's eight minutes past the hour. Thank you so much for your messages. Uh, G-Man says there are plenty of transgenders in Thailand since it is the sex change capital of the world. It's no big deal, says G-Man, because they are respectful and they call themselves ladyboys. Here in the West, they, the trans people, are being used to actually divide the country and create the exact opposite of what they have been manipulated to do. Uh, create disunity, not equality. That's G-Man. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Clifton has been in touch to say, Richie, there seems to be way more men identifying as women as opposed to women identifying as men. I'd be interested to see the statistics on this, says Clifton. You saw what I mean. Thank you for that. And we know there's been an explosion of it amongst uh, youngsters, teenagers, 
but um, Roisin has obviously explained again very succinctly and eloquently why that is the case. Faisal says I can understand how these feminised sex workers are needed to be treated as victims rather than criminalised during the AIDS epidemic. However, the mistake began with their, he says, normalisation in inverted commas, which isn't the same thing. Jenny heard an interview recently with a trans person who feels they were rushed into their decision. The person said during the interview that they believe organisations such as Stonewall, instead of closing up shop once gay people had achieved equal rights, they began to push the trans agenda in order to keep their well-paid jobs and large amounts of funding. I think the person had a point since Jenny. Thank you to Jenny. William says, I think the trans agenda stems from the very top. It would appear that a high percentage of the powers that be are trans themselves, says William. Well, I, w- I can't miss the opportunity to, um, you know, to remember the late Joan Rivers, the comedian, making the comments, the off-the-cuff comments to, I don't know, to somebody who had a video camera when she was on the steps of her apartment in New York. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it was somewhere else. And Joan Rivers made an allegation about Michelle Obama. Isn't that right to remember that? Eamon says, Richie, as a straight white male, I want to apologise to the trans people for whatever their gripe is. (laughs) Fair enough. Thank you, Eamon. Um, uh, Diane says, Richie, this isn't good. The idea of medical supervision is to stop mistakes being made. This is now being removed. Um, It's not a good thing because other mental health issues can seem to be gender dysphoria, but are not, in fact. And as we talked about in our conversation, children need to be protected from making a lifelong error of judgment. And I know I keep saying this, Diane. We've got to get you back on. Um... I do mean it this time. I meant it the previous time. I'll be in touch. We've got to talk about this again. Um, hi to Richard Kelly. R- Richard, thank you. Uh, Fred's been in touch. Hi, Fred. And he says, a Dave Ma... All oh, right, okay. That's a, a, another issue entirely. Thank you uh, for that. And on the issue of weight loss and of exercise, Christine was in touch to say, Richie, when I started to address my eating and my weight, etc., I couldn't get off the couch and I walked with a crutch Exercise for me was just getting on up and down off the couch and a kind of a form of push-ups off the wall. I'm now going to the gym five times a week, says Christine. Starting is the hardest thing. Cutting out sugar was a massive help. Thank you, Christine. Yes, everybody agrees on one thing. Cut out the bloody sugar. That's what you need to do. Cut out the sugar. Right, here's Tom Petty. Tom Petty. Coming up in a few minutes' time... It's Paul Craig Roberts. You don't want to miss him. Check him out at paulcraigroberts.org. Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. That is uh, music from Tom Petty and American Girl on the Richie Allen Show. Tuesday's edition. It's quarter past the hour. Uh, Quarter past six it is. Absolutely scorching here in the northwest of the UK. Fascinating conversation with Roisin. Lots of commentary on that. To find out what others are saying, go to richieallen.com. .co.uk. My guest this hour is uh, just about one of the most distinguished gentlemen we've ever had on this programme uh, over the years. Great to catch up with him today. He is a an author, an economist, and of course, one-time US Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Um, it's great to welcome back our friend, my friend, your friend, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Paul, welcome back. How are you? I think you might have muted your microphone there. No, you didn't. I muted you. Paul, it's me. I'm an idiot. How are you? 
I'm okay, I'm okay Richard. Can you hear me now? Uh, you're, no, you're a gent. No, I made the mistake, Paul. I've been away for three weeks, and I wouldn't be the worst um, studio engineer that ever lived, but I wouldn't be the best either. So when I have any kind of protracted period of holiday or, or, or vacation, I tend to be a bit rusty when I come back. So apologies for... Um, for silencing you there. Welcome back, my friend. It's great to have you on. Terrific work. PaulCraigRoberts.org, folks. Uh, Paul writes articles daily about geopolitics and pretty much everything and features brilliant guest writers as well. Please support it if you can. There's lots for us to get through. We've got till the top of the hour if you have the time. Can I just start with this? Um, Some of your more prominent news organisations are reporting today that wearing masks and social distancing should return this winter to uh, deal with COVID variants and with seasonal flu. That sounds pretty dreadful, Paul. Does that worry you? Do you think Americans will acquiesce and will go along with wearing masks again uh, this coming winter? A lot of them will, uh, Richie. Um, Yes, it does worry me uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one obvious reason they're doing this is if they can have a, <clears throat> a new uh, a panic situation, they can bring back all of the um, uh, essentially illegal ways of voting that they used during the COVID pandemic uh, to be sure they can steal the election this time as well. Uh, because what they did, they let Uh, People uh, vote by mail. They let people just drop off ballots unmonitored in in pickup boxes and all sorts of things that are just wide open to every kind of fraud. So for for the Democrats, it's uh, an election-winning strategy. But it worries me for more reasons uh, than that because I think they are getting the population trained to go through this every year, and they roll out a new vax. So it's profitable for big pharma, of course, and in corporate medicine and, and all of that. But we know from the first vax that it wasn't effective and it wasn't safe. There have been huge numbers of injuries and uh, deaths, and we still have the uh, phenomenon of people dropping dead all the time. Physically fit people, athletes in top form, physical trainers, entertainers on stage, and and it just goes on and on and on. The excess deaths are amazing, and the response from the medical establishment is it's just a coincidence. It's nothing to do with the vax. So what I think they did with that vax, uh, having read a lot, talked to a lot of virologists, independent thinking medical scientists, there were several versions of it, Richie. There was a real strong version, a mid version, and a mild version. And so what happened to you depended on what version you got. Moreover, there was a placebo version, just saline. And why is this? 
And the reason is that if everybody got a strong version of the vax and either had a major health problem or dropped dead, the whole thing would have been exposed. So they had to have, if they're trying to control population, if they're trying to reduce fertility, uh, they're trying to make people uh, more docile, whatever their agendas are, they have to go about it piecemeal. So you have one round of vax and some people die and others don't and more don't die than do. And so the, the vax can, can be uh, said to be trusted. And so then they have a second round, the same thing happens. And then a third round, you see what I'm saying. Eventually yeah, they yeah. can get everybody. Now, what really disturbs me is the scientific paper that was recently published by two uh, top-of-the-line Japanese medical scientists. And what they said, they concluded that every variant of COVID and its variants are all laboratory manufactured. This is a bombshell, this now. I read this on your website today, paulcraigroberts.org. And as usual, you um, highlight your sources so people can follow it themselves. This is bombshell. These guys, and they are credible scientists, right? or at least they're establishment scientists, they reckon the, the variants that they kept repeating the lockdowns with because of variants, those variants themselves were engineered. That's some claim that, isn't it, Paul? Yes. And so, well, now, yes, uh, I talked about this this morning with a, a very distinguished virologist, the, the man who led the study of the original COVID, the original SARS, that was far more deadly, but not very contagious. I spoke to him and he said that you know, a number of them, of virologists, do think that the uh, COVID and the uh, variants or various of the variants um, are lab manufactured, but that some of the mutations would have to be natural just because the virus goes on mutating. But that uh, variant they called, I forget what they called it now, the one they were making a fuss of not too long ago, he said that's also lab created and they can tell by the thing whether it's uh, naturally a, a creation or a lab creation. And so the question, Richie, is why are they creating these viruses and releasing them? Why? The, the, the variant you're referring to, I think, was known as the Kraken variant. It's usually got oh, a... Omicron, Omicron. Omicron, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Omicron, going back. They, 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 they usually say BA 2.3, but yeah, they give them these names, Omicron. So these guys reckon, they've seen this in the lab, and they reckon it's got the hallmarks of something engineered rather than actually a naturally occurring mutation. Wow, yes. if that's true, wow. Yes. Yeah. Well, see, we know that uh, the original COVID-19 was a lab creation because we have the uh, records from the NIH, the National Institute of Health, showing the funding given for that purpose. That's right. First to the University of North Carolina and then to the Wuhan lab. And this is now public knowledge. This, they, they were forced to release 
their their grants, who they gave grants to. And so we do know that this was a laboratory creation just from the documents. We also know because it's been studied and it, it has been shown it's not a natural thing and it couldn't have come from bats and, and all of that. So why? Why are they creating these things and releasing them? I mean, there has to be uh, an agenda here and there's no discussion. Um, the virologist, or not the I also talked to a, uh, a doctor who's in clinical medicine and does um, a lots of research. And he says that you can't even mention the subject. No, you're instantly, you're instantly targeted and and um, shut down. You, that there's absolutely no academic freedom or freedom of speech in medical science if it involves saying anything about created viruses and the release of viruses. It simply is the end of you. So he says that although some of them know that, they don't dare say it. And he says the majority don't even want to think about it. They just trust whatever the authorities say. And they're scared to death, and they just go along with whatever the narrative is, because that's the safe thing to do, even though it's destroying people and going somewhere nobody knows where. I mean, what is this agenda? It has to be an agenda. Oh, there's so many, there's so many aspects of it. I mean, surveillance, turning the, the, the planet into a surveillance planet where everything we do is monitored. And there are consequences for, you know, stepping out of line. We've talked about social crediting. And I just want to say this, Paul and myself have had some amazing chats over the years where I would interrupt Paul and play the devil's advocate and I would disagree with Paul just to do my job. I don't do that so much anymore because it's a waste of time. What Paul is <laughs> no, but what 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 you've said about the N, the NIH, the National Institute for Health, the gain of function research. This is all true, and it's in the public domain. But you're right; people do not know about this because no legacy media outlet has discussed this a single time. It's not discussed. So, so my neighbours, lovely people, many of them, people I talk to, people I'm glad that they're my neighbours. They don't know any of this stuff. They have no idea because it's not on the BBC. It's not on Sky News. And then this is the reason I'm not challenging this stuff today um, because I know that Paul is speaking the truth when, when he says this. Can I throw a bombshell at you on this subject? Um, sure. Here's a bombshell for you now. I read The Conservative Woman, even though I'm um, a silly old socialist, right? I like to read um, people who I previously wouldn't have... Um, seen eye to eye with, but I like the conservativewoman.co.uk, paulcraigroberts.org, a bookmark, Paul. So Neville Hodgkinson, I know you heard of Neville, Paul, he used to write for the Times for many years. Neville was their um, medical and science correspondent for the Sunday Times, a very respected journalist. He's written this article in The Conservative Woman, which is kind of, again, I've been away for three weeks, so I've missed a lot of this. This is what he says, right? He says, reason has flown out the window with regard to the COVID injections. Countless doctors and scientists have reported ill effects ranging through injury, infertility and death associated with the reckless mass rollout of the jabs, yet even today there are calls for more. Wait for this, Paul. Then he says, meanwhile, the story just keeps getting worse. 
The latest instalment is a finding that biological samples from about 50% of mRNA vaccinees showed persisting presence of the toxic spike protein coded by the jab weeks or months later. The maximum time at which it was detected in a vaccinee was about six months. That is... I, you might have known this now. I should should say that straight up. You might have known this. I didn't know this. This is genuine research that people who have had the jab, the toxic spike protein, which is supposed to disappear very quickly out of your bloodstream and out of your body, is present in people, Paul, up to six months later, which might explain some of the unexplained, you know, deaths that you spoke about a few minutes ago. This is massive news. Six months I, later. Yes, Richie, and... Um, I hesitate to say this because um, I may be mistaken, but I think I read this morning, I stumbled across a paper. I didn't read it very carefully because I was in a hurry, but it, if I remember correctly, the paper said that they've now found that the spike protein replicates itself inside the human body and never goes away. Yeah, I've seen that too, yeah. So, you know, if that's true or turns out to be true, then it sounds like um, you have to go through some cleansing operation. And I do know that the doctors who were skeptical of, of the whole COVID deception from day one, some of them are devising cleansing operations, things that you take, including ivermectin, that succeed in cleansing the spike protein out of your body. And they are trying to create treatments that let people who have what was originally called long COVID uh, recover. And they can kind of use that as a screen for treating people who are suffering from the jabs. So I'm not up to terms on, on that. I do know that it's ongoing. I don't know how widespread, how successful, how much opposition they're getting, whether they're trying to be shut down. But I suspect that if we have, again, uh, this fall, lockdowns and masks, then they will use it to, again, attack any skeptic. And you may remember the last time, Richie, the skeptics, a lot of people who were uninformed and, of course, are not scientists, were demanding that these scientists be killed That's right. for opposing masks. And they had to be killed because they were threatening the population, scaring them away from the vaccination. And, and it's, it was such an emotional and violent response to the truth tellers. Yeah, they framed it as left against right, didn't they? They put that false kind of paradigm where yeah. they said that if you didn't have a job, you were a horrible conservative who doesn't care about anybody else and you don't care about your granny. And if you do take the job, well, then you're a lovely social, socially conscious person who 
you know, loves his fellow man and would do anything to protect society. And they were very successful in framing it like that, as you've just said, very yeah. successful. And they were. So <clears throat> if we have a second round of it, um, it'll be even harder to oppose it, even though a lot of people now realize that they were deceived. Not a majority, of course, but there are a lot of people. They <clears throat> they either lost friends or relatives they experience, or experienced it themselves, and they realized that there was a lot wrong with the COVID vaccine and that they were incorrectly uh, informed and that it was not effective. It did not prevent uh, transition. That's right. It did not prevent you catching it. You know, just the other day, there was a story about the guys had seven of the COVID vaccinations and has come down with COVID three times. That's ridiculous. So how can they still, uh, you know, market this? Well, just just the other day, the CDC uh, uh, said that they stand by the uh, absolute requirement that people need this vaccination and they have to keep it up to date. Uh, they just said this. Uh, now, this is the same CDC who just closed down its uh, special VAERS um, site, the one that you reported COVID shot injuries too. They just closed it down. It's not clear why. Um, the, the ordinary VAERS, you know, this is the site where you report vaccine injuries. <clears throat> it's still up, but it has all possible vaccines, injuries from all vaccines. Whereas the CDC had one that was only for the COVID vax, and they've closed it. And, and they've issued uh, their uh, opinion that everyone needs to continue having COVID shots. Well, how can you say that when we have so much information of the harm it does and the deaths, you know, the excess deaths. And it's just in the news every day. Uh, uh, just the other day, Jimmy Buffett, the oh, yeah. famous American country singer, he died. And, you know, he, he was very proud that he and his band had all had the shot. And then it turned out he had a very rare and highly dangerous form of cancer that that uh, proceeds very rapidly. If you get it, you don't live long. And so now to cover up, they say, oh, he's been fighting it for years. Well, it's not a cancer that takes years. It kills you in a matter of weeks or months. <laughs> and so they cover these things up. And we have just, I just read an article this morning. I don't know, it must have been 20 or 30 physical fitness instructors in the last week or two drop dead. Who may or may not have the jabs, but it, it, it must be investigated, this stuff, but it they won't be. They don't investigate No, they it. don't, no. It don't, they don't even really report it. You have to get it kind of in, you don't get it from the legacy media. You have to get it from other 
media. Do you know what I uh, think is a little bit unhelpful, by the way? And I don't disagree with what you said at all. But there are one or two doctors who've become a bit fond of the attention they've received when they've kind of defected to the independent media. So doctors that are saying the right things, right? Which is a good thing. I'm not saying it isn't. But they've gotten a little bit fond of it. Some of these doctors are making claims about celebrities, saying that they were killed by the jabs when they do not know for a fact they were killed by the jabs. And I think that's not only counterproductive, um, but it's seriously damaging to the independent media. There's one in particular, I think his name is, um, um, is it Malhotra, I think? I hope I'm not doing the guy a disservice. Um, British guy. But um, he made claims about the famous cricket player Shane Warren about the jab having killed Shane with absolutely no evidence whatsoever to back it up. And you're an evidence-based fr- a, a guy, my friend. That's not good, is it? We, some of these guys need to behave themselves a bit. Some of these, um, you know, doctors who've kind of been in the limelight because they've asked a few questions about the the safety of the jab. So I think they need to rein themselves in a bit, Paul. Well, I'm not sure you're right for this reason. It doesn't do these doctors any good to say that. It it hurts them. It costs them. They get uh, they get in trouble with medical boards. Uh, also, I think it's a fairly safe assumption that celebrities and athletes were used to show the safety of taking the jab. A lot of celebrities lined up and said, see, it's safe. I took it. They used them. They were used in this way. And so were athletes. You remember uh, we here in, in the States, as well as I remember the football teams, everybody was forced to take it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure any kind of organized sport was under tremendous pressure because the notion was if you you would spread it to other team members, uh, both your own team and then the team you were playing. So when when the doctors come to these conclusions, it's not that they're just speculating. They're just saying on the average, it's likely if it's an entertainer or an athlete that they took the jab. I wouldn't mind if they put it in those terms, but a lot of the time they don't. They make a declaration of fact, which I I don't appreciate because, you know, look, the mainstream media plays those games. I think those of us who do independent journalism, like your good self, paulcraigroberts.org, we have to be whiter than white and say what it is you can prove and not what you can't prove. I read paulcraigroberts.org because when you make a statement of fact, you generally provide, not generally, you always provide um, some evidence to support it. And that, that, That's just the point. Maybe maybe my point is, is um, it's maybe it's silly for me to pursue it, but yeah, I just wish some of them would be. And to answer your question, for, for some of them, I do think they've gotten a little taste of fame and some of them like that. And, you know, that would concern me. But that's for another uh, day in any case. Paul Craig Roberts is our guest today. And thank God for him. Go to paulcraigroberts.org. Do support the independent media, folks, because um, they're not lining up to throw advertising money at Paul Craig Roberts. 
They're just not, <laughs> sadly. So if you want to read good, well-resourced articles, you've got to send a few books Paul's way uh, from time uh, to time. The time's coming up for 20 minutes to the top of the hour. We've got another 15 minutes, I reckon, or thereabouts um, with Paul. Do you know what, Paul, on that whole thing about restrictions and mask wearing, I I don't know if I have more faith in people than you because I, I, I can't read your mind. But I don't think people will will be as acquiescent next time around. I don't think so. I think the economic damage that has been done to people. I mean, there's genuine poverty. You know, I see it now, Paul. I wouldn't have seen it three years ago. But I see gen- I see the results of closing down the economy. And I think people won't be as fooled next time around and they might be a bit more reluctant to close their businesses and commit economic suicide. What do you reckon? Well, that's possible. But it's like you said earlier, uh, Richie, um, most ordinary people don't really know no. about these things. And they they hear what the authorities say and they tend to go along with it. It's, it's not like they're informed or they all listen to you or read me or have or have a basis for their suspicions. Um, so I don't know, but you may be right. It may be that they won't be able to pull it off a second time and have, on the other hand, it may be there's enough more this time who won't go along such that the hatred between the groups gets higher. Yeah. The ones who do go along will be even more uh, outspoken against those that don't. You could see uh, coming out of it a deepening of uh, of a riff in the society. I don't know what the result will be. I hope that um, your suspicion is right and that people will simply not comply this time. They'll simply say, well, we did this and now you're telling us we got to do it again and we're going to be told that again next year. And <clears throat> who knows? It did terrible damage to children, Paul, didn't it? There was a report here on on the national media the other day that said five- and six-year-old children are nowhere near they should be in terms of their ability to articulate themselves, to speak. It's done so much damage because they were three, they were four at nursery school and they weren't having the interactions. They were looking at teachers who were wearing masks. I mean, that's... I don't like to use terms like evil, but... I'm going to use that term. It's evil what they did to children, particularly. Yes, I believe it is. I think it was very emotionally damaging. And it could have lifelong effects on them. Uh, But the CDC says that uh, everybody six years old and older has to be continually vaccinated. Well, they're going to kill these kids, destroying the immune system. You know, another proven fact about the COVID uh, vaccines is that it does damage the human immune system. That's, I don't think, is any longer disputed. Well, if you're going to damage the immune system of a six-year-old, you know, what are you doing for him in his life? And they've actually given this stuff now to babies. Yeah. Out of the womb. And pregnant yeah. women. And so why? Because the, uh, the, the 
drug manufacturers themselves said the kids don't aren't really vulnerable to COVID. It was supposed to be the elderly with comorbidities that were most vulnerable. And children were sim simply uh, not being affected in any serious way by COVID. But they've been very seriously affected by the COVID vaccines. So why are they doing this? You know, why does the medical establishment deny the evidence in front of their eyes? Why? Why do they not investigate? Why do they not do autopsies of people who die from the vax or are suspected to have died from the vax? Why don't they do autopsies? I mean, why is the medical establishment all over the Western world complicit in covering up that the vaccine is dangerous, that it does not protect, and it does not prevent transmission. Why do they cover it up? Well, why does the CDC close down its site that only records adverse effects of the COVID vax? Why? It's a fire it's like they don't want anybody to know and they continue with the same narrative, get vaxxed, get vaxxed, get vaxxed. Well, like I say, I read this morning, it was a 20 or 30 physical, young physical training people dropped dead. And they've had massive heart attacks and stuff like that. So now the line is, oh, well, you see, they're active people, so they're more likely to have a heart attack. Which is well, it never happened before. No, it didn't. No, I'm a pretty fit guy, I run daily, and I do so because it greatly increases my or sorry, it decreases my chances of developing heart disease. I know that life can be very ironic sometimes, and I might drop dead of a heart attack tomorrow. And just in case I do, you can play the clip back later on, and have a good laugh at it. But I keep physically fit because it's the right thing to do for my heart. You're right; it's 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 an upside down world. It's a lunatic asylum when they can say so many young people are dying because they're overactive. It's insane, and it's even worse that people would go along with that and say, "Oh, okay." We'll swallow that. It's farcical, Paul, because you're right. On the one hand, doctors are going along with it. But yet on the other hand, in the last two years, I've interviewed dozens of general practitioners, medical doctors, who have had the courage to say, listen, these jobs are dangerous. They're dangerous for some people. You know, they, they can kill you. Uh, they're not necessary. You don't need to take them. So it's a really farcical situation we have in the independent media, which is, of course is censored, um, constantly, night and day, as you well know on your own website. Here we have these very well-qualified people saying, don't take these jabs, they're dangerous, and you don't need them. And then you have those doctors who appear on CNN, CNBC, telling people, don't forget now, folks, get boosted this coming fall, and don't forget to have your flu jab too. It is a farcical situation. And, and tragic, really, isn't it? It's tragic. And what is the motive behind it? Yeah. Well, I agree with you, I, and, and it pains me, not, it doesn't pain me to agree with you, it pains me to be saying this out loud. It, it's, I believe it's deliberate. I, I believe there is a deep 
population agenda in play. But but I don't necessarily believe that the average vaccinator or the average doctor would have any idea about any of that. And I do accept that most people, when they hear about depopulation agendas, most people think that it is fanciful, if not downright insane. And I've got to acknowledge that. Most people would think, you and I are crazy talking about depopulation. And well, you I- see, it's not, it's not us who talk about it, Richie. It's Bill Gates. Yes. It's Klaus Schwab. The World Economic Forum is powerful people, powerful institutions. They've been talking about it for decades. That's right. Overcrowding. We need to reduce the population. All I do is report it. I'm not part of it. I haven't any way of, of, I'm not participating in these various plots and plans. But, you know, Bill Gates is known for that. He's been going on about it for the longest time. And so is Klaus Schwab. And, And Klaus Schwab, his intent was to use the COVID pandemic for the for the Great Reset to take away everyone's rights and property. And he's very explicit about it. It's you know, people don't know because the media doesn't right. write about it. But it's public. You can get it. You can see his speeches, his his book. Uh, it's all available. The same with Gates. He said this so much. So it's not. And there are others. It's in their documentation, Paul. And again, I want to say this to listeners who might be new to this program. It is in their documentation. It's specific. It's, it's more than specific in the documentation that um, the world has to be remade, you know, and uh, it has to be remade to deal with uh, climate change and it has to be remade to deal with pandemics and that people will have to drastically change the way they live and accept things that might be very uncomfortable, but to accept them for the greater good. It's all in their documentation, all of it. I mean, this is the thing. I, I, you know, I struggled with this for years. I know you did, you know, because both of us had one foot, you obviously much more prestigiously than me, but we had our feet in the mainstream. I was a mainstream news presenter and producer for years. It's not easy to acknowledge this stuff and to say that it's real, but it is real. It is happening. It's happening in front of our eyes. I mean, the, 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 the things they're doing here, we could talk, and I think we should talk next month about it. The things they're introducing here to deal with man-made climate change, Paul. I mean, to say the things they're introducing are draconian is the biggest understatement of the year. They want to completely imprison people in their own cities, in their own towns. And I, I know you know all about this on, on, the, on the basis that we need to do this to, to prevent climate change. It's um, horrifying stuff. And I, I, we've got about three minutes left. I want to give you the last three minutes. I don't think there's much time left to deal with this. I think people have got to wake up to this now. Five years' time will be too late, Paul. What do you reckon? I agree with you. It's got to, they got to wake up real quick. If they get away with a second round of this, I think it's all over. And, um, but, um, you know, the last thing I would like to say about what's going on is a complete breakdown of the rule of law. It no longer exists in the United States. There's no longer a rule of law. The law is no longer a shield of the people. It's a weapon. And it's a weapon used to uh, dispose of opponents. And we can see this most clearly in the indictments against Donald Trump. 
Why are they doing this? Because all the polls show that he will win the election hands down. So they've got to stop him. They're not, they've got to prevent him from running. So they concoct a bunch of phony indictments. All kinds of lawyers, left wing, right wing, have said, look, there's no legal basis for these charges. They don't make any sense. It's not racketeering to question the outcome of an election. Look how strongly uh, Hillary contested Trump's victory. She contested Trump's victory stronger than Trump contested Biden's. Remember how strong the Democrats contested George W. Bush victory. That's right. With good cause. With good cause. The United States Supreme Court. It went to the Supreme Court to be settled. It was contested so hard. So contesting an election is just part of American politics or any politics. How does it become a felony? It can't. All, all of these charges are just to try to create a public image of a criminal, to time up in lawsuits, trials during the campaign season. You know, he's going to go to, he has to go to trial when the, when the votes coming out. Yeah. So, you know, these things, they're obvious. Can I just say on that? They don't get stopped. Can they I, don't get stopped. Where's, where's the, the judiciary? Where are the law schools? Where are the bar associations? Maybe, oh, well, we don't care. We don't like Trump. So let's let them get him. That's not a rule of law. No, and this this breakdown is everywhere. Now you might everything you said there might very well be right, and you're far more um, uh, well read on this and far more informed than I am. But I want to say for for new listeners, and Paul knows this, I personally don't have any time for Donald Trump at all or any politician. Um, you might say Clinton was worse, absolutely, and uh, Bill Clinton, yeah, and 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 George W. Bush and George H. W. Yes, of course. I just believe that while you might be right in everything you say, I am going to give you the final word, 30 seconds, we've got to go then. Um, I just don't believe it makes a blind bit of difference which presidents or prime ministers we have because the agenda moves forward in any case. That's always been my personal opinion on that. I just want to make that clear with total respect for Paul's take on it. Paul, absolute final word to you, 30 seconds. I will not interrupt you and I will not editorialise afterwards. Paul Craig Roberts.org, folks. Go ahead, Paul. You're exactly right. I agree. The, the agenda is the same who was in there. But w- what I'm talking about is the rule of law. The rule of law isn't, oh, we don't like him. Let's get him. Yeah. The rule of law doesn't go by emotion. It goes by facts. It goes by law and facts, not emotion. And what's happened in, here, particularly with Trump, that facts are not part of the case. It's just emotion. We don't like him. Get him. Well, yeah. that's the end of a rule of law. You know, there you got tyranny. They, they can do that to anybody. If they can do that to a president of the United States, they can do it to anybody. And that's what's happening. We're just, the rule of law is something that it basically we owe it to the British. Over the centuries, they created a rule of law that was finally institutionalized in 1680. Well, this is a huge achievement of civilization. Well, now we've just destroyed it here because, oh, we don't like Trump. 
let's pick this up next month. And I know you've been writing about law and order um, in other areas as well, in, in, you know, public law and order. I know you've been writing about stuff to do with DeSantis, which we could have talked about today, which I find uh, hugely interesting. Um, as I promised, you've had the last word there. No editorialising for me because I'm going to close down the programme now. Paul, thanks for your time today, pal. Love having you on and I look forward to next time. Thanks for everything. Thank you. I love talking to you. Cheers, Paul. PaulCraigRoberts.org, folks. Bookmark the website. Daily articles by Paul and by some terrific guest writers. Thanks to him and thanks to you for listening. And thanks uh, to our first guest as well, uh, Roisin Michaud. She was absolutely brilliant. We'll speak again tomorrow, uh, Wednesday at 5 o'clock UK time. Until then, it's bye from your BBG. I've heard people say that too much of anything